Snap Studios. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Support for Snap Judgment comes from Odoo. What is Odoo? Well, Odoo is the only software your business will ever need. Featuring a suite of integrated business applications, Odoo connects your business operations together so you can get more done in less time. Odoo has apps for everything. CRM, accounting, sales, HR, inventory, marketing, manufacturing, you name it. Odoo's got it. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash snap. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash snap. Okay, so there is this thing. It's powerful. And while for some people it means nothing, others will do anything to get it. It can cost your life, but can only be given freely. It's what brings relationships closer and it's what tears them apart. Today on Snap Judgment from WNYC we proudly present Unforgiven. Amazing stories of forgiveness. What happens when you get it and what happens when you don't. My name is Glenn Washington. Please remember to light a candle because you're listening to Snap Judgment. We're going to start off today's episode in New York City during the mid-70s on a very frightening day for many families. Kathleen Murray Moran tells her story. Tomorrow, we planned to go to the beach. I had already made a picnic lunch for us. Everyone was very excited. We had our pails and shovels and uh, we were ready to take off in the morning. It was a warm evening in September 1976, almost midnight, and Kathleen's two young boys, Chris and Keith, were already fast asleep. But Kathleen was soaking in the bathtub, waiting for her husband Brian to come home after a late night of work. I was lying in the bath when I heard the TV from our bedroom. This is a special report from CBS News. TWA flight. 355 to Chicago, carrying 86 passengers and seven crew members, has been hijacked. Two Croatians, Zvanko and Julie Busick, claimed to have a bomb on board the plane and a second device located in New York City. I grabbed a towel and I ran into the bedroom. On the tiny black and white TV screen, she saw the camera pan to the most familiar face in the world. It was Brian in a Kevlar vest, bomb squad written on the back. Brian was a six-year veteran of the NYPD's bomb squad. On the screen, I watch as he lifts a Macy shopping bag. Then he laid a blanket on the ground, and he and his partner placed the shopping bag on the blanket and then clipped the blanket to a pole. And the two of them lifted the pole to their shoulders and walked out of sight. I tell myself not to panic. You know, he has worked hundreds of cases just like this one. There had not been anyone injured on the bomb squad since 1939, but there was something about it and I couldn't shake it. I walked into the boys' room and I watched them sleep and I listened to them breathe and waited until I could calm myself down. He would come back and see his sons. Kathleen waits for what feels like hours. She drifts asleep. Then something wakes her up. I look around the room, and I can see red lights. The clock says 4 a.m., and I can hear car doors slamming. 
I look out the window, and the street is covered with police cars. This cannot be happening. This is not for me. They're not here for me. But then I hear the doorbell ringing. So I walk down the stairs. When I open it, I see a man from the bomb squad. He looks up at me, and he said three words. We lost him. No. No. Physically, no. I felt so weak, I thought I would fall. My stomach is in knots. The man at the door held my hand, and I led him towards the stairs so I could go up to hold my sons. I lifted Chris from his crib, and a few moments later, Keith woke up and sat down next to me. What's the matter, Mommy, he said. Daddy went to heaven. How did he get there? And I said God came to get him. A police officer helped me down the stairs with the boys to a room filled with NYPD. The kitchen seemed like foreign territory to me as I tried to find cereal for the boys. I, I couldn't think where the milk was. Everything just seemed so, so alien. I heard a car door slam outside, and I looked out the living room window to see my mother walk up. She grabbed me and held me, and that's when I broke down. No one could tell me why the bomb exploded. The official report was it was undetermined. The funeral was on a bright sunny day, and I wanted it to rain. I was so angry. As the years went by, I thought I had gotten over Brian. But there was always that pain that I don't think we ever truly get over. It's been over a decade since the terrorist hijacking and bombing. Since then, Kathleen has remarried, her boys are now in their teens, and she also has a daughter with her new husband. One day, I'd take the mail in, I flipped through it, and then stopped when I saw a letter that said, Federal Correction Center. In the corner, Busick J was written in a spidery hand. The name made me shiver, because I realized that inside that envelope would be the words of my husband's killer. I shoved the letter in the drawer and slammed it shut. I sit down with my family to have dinner. And after bedtime kisses and everyone went to bed, I go down and sit on the couch, take the letter from the drawer. The very feel of the paper disgusted me. What could she want? Why was she right to me? I wanted her to rot in hell. And yet I was so compelled when this letter came. She wrote... You are the one who has suffered most. How can saying how sorry I am ever be enough? Even the fact that I have languished in prison for so many years does not seem enough punishment for me. I was surprised. It sort of struck me that this woman was sincere. So I write back to her. My hands are shaking, and I wonder if I'm making a mistake. I can't imagine what it's been like to wake up in prison every day, but I'll bet you thought about what your actions did to me, and I'm glad. But I like the irony of our correspondence and the chance to write what I can't say to anyone else. Before I put the letter in the mailbox, I wondered if I should tell my current husband. He did not like to talk about Brian, so I decided that I would just write that one letter and that he would never have to know and it would make no difference. I check the mailbox every day. In the meantime, I compose letters in my mind. And in those letters, I say, I hope you never get out of prison. I hope you never have children. And yet when her letter comes, I can't wait to read it. Julie Busick sent letter after letter apologizing for her crimes, and Kathleen couldn't help but write back. Julie said that while she did believe in her husband's cause, she never thought the bomb would go off. And for that, she was eternally remorseful. 
She did not think that it was the right thing to do. She tried to dissuade him, but she failed in her efforts, so she decided to go along with him. Caused me to empathize with her because she had followed her husband blindly. Over time, her letters revealed that she decided to become a nun. If I lost my husband, she would do without hers as well. She divorced her husband and had cut all ties with him. That gave me, you know, a, a, I felt stronger about our, our correspondence. It was a turning point because he never had any of my sympathy. So when she said that she divorced him, I felt that I could be more open with her, that she could be more open with me. Soon, the letters became more casual, more friendly. Kathleen and Julie bonded over the fact that they were both the same age, enjoyed growing rose bushes, and that they were both previously English teachers in Manhattan. We traded books back and forth. There was a book called Depraved Indifference by Robert Tannenbaum that was a story about the incident. And so we both read the book and compared notes. You know, I could tell her anything. I could tell her when, you know, when, when I don't know, when Chris went on the boat and drank beer. He was 14 years old. <laughs> and, and I would write to her about those things, and she would write back and tell me, you know, that, that at 14, of course, that's what he wants to do, and that doesn't, doesn't show who he's going to be when he grows up. You know, that, in other words, I was taking things very seriously, but she had some perspective in it. I did tell her secrets. I shared with Julie that my sister was a heroin addict and wound up in prison and how she ruined her life. And that was something that I never talked about with anyone. After a while, I was writing to someone who understood me. It was like seeing a therapist, and she was so kind and gentle with me. Even when I wrote things that were terrible, I would say to her, I hope you rot in jail for the rest of your life. That was in the beginning. And yet she would write back and say, I'm sorry that you feel that way, but I understand. We wrote letters to each other for over three years. We wrote probably 100 letters, and I never told my husband. I believe after all those years of correspondence that she was a victim and that she was manipulated by her husband, and she went along with him because he had power over her. So I decided to write to the parole board to set her free. She had been in prison five years past the time that she should have been released. I wrote in the letter that I believed she had served her time, that she was remorseful, repentant. Kathleen didn't hear back from the parole board, so she just put it to the back of her mind. But one year later... I opened a letter from Julie. She said she was offered a year in a halfway house, and then that she would be released. Kathleen and Julie wrote back and forth from the halfway house. Julie wrote that she was excited to move to Oregon, back to her parents' home, but that she wanted to visit Kathleen in New York first. So they planned a lunch date. We agreed to meet in a very nice restaurant near Central Park. Before she was released, she wrote to me, I am so thankful for your letters to me and to the parole board. I will never forget your kindness. I will arrive in New York on October 24th, and I am so excited to meet you. I was very, very excited to see her. I did believe that seeing her would finally give me closure. That morning, I woke up with, with the jitters. My husband kept asking me, what was the matter? And of course, I could not tell him. Most of my closet was on my bed piled high because I couldn't decide what to wear. And I thought about what she might look like if she was prison-worn or wrinkled-looking from having been behind bars all those years. I thought that even though I was 40 years old, that I still had a good figure and my hair was still red and that I probably would look better than she did. <laughs> a little competition. <laughs> I got to the restaurant early because I was so nervous. The restaurant was bustling 
with conversation and laughter and waiters. And I thought, boy, I could use a glass of wine. I was standing by the hostess when I felt a tap on my shoulder and I turned around and I knew it was her. She was beautiful, much more lovely than I could have thought. She had on a beautiful dress and she had a pearly white smile. And the first thing I thought was, she didn't look like a hijacker, she didn't look like she had been in prison for 13 years. She took me into an embrace and she said, oh my God, you're so beautiful. And I thought to myself, no I'm not, you are, <laughs> you know. We sat down and she was carrying a shopping bag. And at first I pulled back because of the Macy shopping bag with the bright red star and it frightened me. But I peeked inside and I saw that it looked like a gift. So she handed it to me and she said, this is a Croatian woven purse and it was given to me by the Croatian community for you. In addition, she had an envelope with money in it, and she handed that to me as well. Then I asked her what her plans were now that she was free, and she sat up straight and she said, I'm going to move to Croatia and wait for Zvanko to be released. And I sat back and looked at her and I said, I thought you were divorced. She said, I made some hasty decisions. We were divorced, but we, we remarried. And I said, what hasty decision was that? To build a bomb, to hijack a plane? She said, well, I had no choice. You, you did have a choice. You could have gone to the police. You could have gone to the embassy. There were other ways to do this. I thought, I can't believe this. She is going to have her husband back, and I will never have my husband back. With that, something in me shifted. I look across the room towards the exit, and I stood up and said, I'm leaving. Wait, she said. I paused at the table. She said, there has to be an end to our suffering. You said so yourself. Which brings me to ask you if you'll write a letter to the parole board for Zvanko. That hatred that I felt for her in the very beginning came back. She was not the one manipulated, it was me. She had manipulated me to become her husband's savior. I took a deep breath. I yelled, I'm not going to help your husband. As a matter of fact, I'm going to do everything I can to keep him behind bars for the rest of his life. She stood up and tried to take my hand, and I grabbed it back and shoved the shopping bag and the envelope towards her. I scraped back the chair and I walked across the room, free from Julie Busick, my husband's killer. When I walked out of that room, that is what gave me closure, freeing myself of her. I made a mistake in helping her, but that mistake did help me to move on. Thank you, Kathleen Mori Moran, for sharing that story. Kathleen worked with New York City's Mayor Rudy Giuliani to keep Zvanko Busick locked in prison. But after 32 years, Zvanko was paroled for good behavior in 2008 and reunited with his wife, Julie Busick. For more information about Kathleen's story, we'll have links on our website, snapjudgment.org. That story was produced with an original score by Davey Kim. Snap Judgment returns the real-life Grizzly Adams. Now, what happens when it has to be either you or her? Snap Judgment, the Unforgiven episode. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the Unforgiven episode. Today, we're exploring when to extend an olive branch. In our next story, it does reference violence against women, and as such, listener discretion is advised. It comes from a former rookie cop in the New Orleans Police Department, who at first thought he was signing up to be one of the good guys. 
I was fresh out the academy. And uh, while you're in the police academy, you're taught your basic rules and regulations. You know, I had no problem with them. But uh, unfortunately, at that time, it was a lot of officers bent on doing a little criminal acts themselves sometimes, you know, doing a lot of wrong. It's funny because I went to my commander, gave him a, a letter making an official complaint. He took the letter and he told me, he said, let me tell you something. Either I can ignore that you brought me this letter or I can file the charges, in which case you won't ever again be safe on the streets. So eventually, you know, being a young kid at the time, I eventually let it go and sort of joined the club. I realized that it wasn't what it's supposed to be. I guess you might say it was one of those things where if you can't beat them, you join them. And I got to be just very cold with it. I don't know. Well, I'll just put it, I'll put it to you this way. Myself and another partner of mine were riding around one day and they had uh, two females that were from Boston and they came down, rented a car, and I guess they were sightseeing in New Orleans, stopped them, gave them tickets and threatened them with going to jail and so forth. Listen, uh, if you want to get out of this, you're going to have to uh, have sex with us. Get in the police car. And we got. We put them in the back of the police car, and uh, we went to an old warehouse district. We had sex with them and stuff, and they were petrified. We took them back to their car, and we still wind up arresting them for some bogus charge. And I remember looking at my partner and and asking him, "Why? Did, what? Come on, you know, let these girls go." And so he, he told me, he "Said no. He said, uh, always cover your back." This was systemic. It happened, you know, many times, you know. I can think about at least maybe four or five occasions, you know, that I personally, if it was a male, I would check him down for money. If it was a female, it would be sex. Anyway, I got a call one day, and this day I was alone. This woman, she was uh, riding in the stolen car. So immediately I went you know, behind her and turned on my lights, my, my emergency lights and so forth, and pulled her on the side. Uh, she had a whole amount of charges that was going to be placed against her, all felony charges, probably 20 years in jail. So I made a deal with her. I tried to make a deal with her, and I said, listen, you know, I can get you out of these charges, you know, for blah, 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 for, for sex. She agreed to it, and... Uh, Later that evening when I was off duty, we met. But unbeknown to me, uh, she had instantly went to the Internal Affairs Department and told the officers then, you know, what I had done. The sting operation was set up uh, where she and I was going to meet again. And I was arrested. The word had came down at that time through me, through some of the sheriffs that I knew there, that the inmates had a special party for me. And <laughs> I, I knew instantly what that meant. Of course, today is different when a law enforcement officer get arrested. Now there's a separate facility that they put them in. But back in the 70s, when this happened in 1979, you were just put in general population. I mean, just think about it. You know you're going into a facility where you know that there's at least 40 people you have personally arrested and put there for, for, for years. And, you know, and, and the word is getting to you that they're going to kill you. You know, and what does one do? Do you just go there and die? I have one of those kind of type A personalities where I just, you know, I, I'm not a person that just give up very easily. You know, I'm going to give you a run for your money, so to speak, you know. And so I decided to to run, to be a fugitive. I knew that uh, the U.S. Marshal Service and probably the FBI would get involved with it because I was a cop. And so, you know, I mean, what do you run? How do you run? I had figured out that I could never make it in the cities because I would be too hot. And the only place I could figure I could go at would be in the woods. I would go into the library every day and read stuff on how I could survive, how to hunt animals, trap them, eat them, cook them, 
you know, I wanted to learn about weather techniques. I wanted to learn, learn about uh, first aid, you know, because I knew I would be someone, you know, by myself. Well, I was giving up everything. I had a girlfriend at the time that I, I cared about. I was giving up home. I was giving up my car. Uh, essentially, I was, you know, it was going to be a solo trip. I knew I had to cool off and I had to get out of the country, so I went to Canada. I had my camping gear with me, a little small plastic tent, canned goods. You know, what I had was probably going to only last me for about two weeks. Uh, I remember distinctively taking a bottle of vitamins with me, a pistol. Uh, you know, I, I was going out there for the long haul. I remember when I was going off the main highway, uh, going back into the woods. Yeah, I was, yeah, I was afraid. It's, you've done research, but you haven't actually applied anything yet. I looked down the highway to the north, then I turned and looked through the south, and this is an old rural highway, and I remember distinctly, you know, saying, goodbye world. And I began to step into the woods. Every step was a very difficult step because I knew I had to go deep in there. The first night was rough, I mean, as you can imagine, because I was scared to death. I remember laying down in my tent, you know, I began to fear the darkness, the strange sounds, and I was tucked up underneath a sleeping bag, and I thought really that I had something had touched my leg. I got up with the pistol ready to shoot, and I actually found out that I was so scared that it was I had touched my leg with my other leg. <laughs> now that's what you call skid. I distinctly remember looking up at the sky at night and seeing an airplane hit south, and I began to think of my siblings back home. I had a son that was just born during that time. I began to think about home in general. I mean, it was just like, uh, it was just like traveling to the moon, you know? I had nobody that I could call or, or anything. And I, a couple of times I thought about pulling the trigger, you know, just shoot myself and that would be it. Eventually, I mean, I got better and more comfortable being out there. It's remarkable what a human mind, I sometimes think, how it would adjust to certain conditions because throughout the day, I had routine things that other people would do too. Like for instance, I had moments where I would call, go and look at TV. And that essentially meant climbing a tree and looking at the animals, at the birds, how they hunt, and that was TV to me. I became an expert tracker. I could look at tracks and know what this was, whether it was a raccoon, whether it was a bear, a wolf. The, about maybe the, the first year in the woods, uh, I wasn't scared anymore. And you gotta keep in mind, as the months and years are passing, I am leaving what I am used to. Every day I would walk about a mile or two from my camp to go hunting. Usually I did is I trapped them. Raccoon, possums, and deer, and all kind of other animals. Uh, uh, actually, I camped in every state on the mainland except Vermont. The only reason why I remember Vermont is because I remember thinking about staying there. Maybe your listeners don't know right now, but I'm a black guy, okay? <laughs> they didn't have no black people there. If they did, I didn't see any. So it was like I said, you know what? I need to get up out of here. <laughs> that was one thing I couldn't improvise on. That's the tactic. I mean, you want to keep moving. Only two things I had missed, uh, and it had nothing to do with conversation, women, nothing. I missed coffee, and I missed a toenail clipper because my toenails had gotten so long that I had to make myself, you know, curl myself up to bite them off. After five years, I was, I was heartless. After 10 years, I was a true animal in the true sense of the word. No feelings at all. After 15 years, being a fugitive felt normal. 
Well, I was I was sitting down and uh, I was making some tea. I think at that point I had been out for about 18 years. And I heard uh, some rustling in the woods, but this sound was just like, just crazy, I'll describe at the time. So naturally, you know, I got up in a defensive position and hid behind a tree and I look and this guy comes fumbling in there, falling down, trying to chase insects off his head while also trying to hold a bag around his shoulder. It was just a person that didn't know what they were doing. I could kind of see he was scared. He was, he was, he was frightened. We began to talk and I could tell instantly the guy was on the run or that he was wanted. He's coming through there, you know, and, he, and, it's, and it's the hardware he has, he almost has like suitcases type, like bags with him. You know, like you're, you're going to Disney World somewhere. I'm like, man, you got to lose all this. You know what I mean? I had already had a camp set up where, you know, everything was good for me. I mean, I was living life in the woods. Yeah, if you can imagine a person like just, you know, way out of place. That night we were burning a fire and he was just, you know, we were sitting at the fire. He began, I began to tell him what I had been through, what he was going to be having to go through also. In order to get away permanently, you're going to have, and he had a mom and a dad and he loved them and he had a son and siblings. And I told him, I said, you're never going to be able to call them. You're never going to be able to call them especially never call him on holidays. I said, you're not going to see your son again. You're done with your wife. She'll probably be filing divorce in two years or so forth. I was just letting him know, you know, prepare yourself. And, he, and this guy began to cry and so forth. Oh, I went in hard. I thought he was, you know, I mean, he started crying. I mean, I know you're not going to make it out here. Yeah, he was, he was, uh, he lit into it. I mean, he was just really upset, very, very upset. Uh, we talking big sobs. He wound up giving himself up the next, the very next day because he was more afraid of what I was telling him to look forward to than the, than the law enforcement. And I always wonder whatever happened to that little fellow. I had spent a great deal of time out there and, and I think, you know, things changed uh, for me. They just changed. I began to regret all that I had did. I had missed my family. So when that 22nd year came, I began to test God. And it was, it was, I began to question the universe where I'm challenging things and they seemingly are responding to me. And I remember distinctively looking at a plant. The, the, the bloom, would, it would just, you know, spread out like a, like a rose, you know. Like in the beginning, it would be closed like a, a pod. I said that this plant, if there is a God, when I come back from hunting, this plant should be closed. And it was closed. And then I would do it again to say, at a certain time, it should open if you're a God. And it would be open. And then lastly, what I did was with the rock and the can. And I can see that can now. It's like, you know, the old five pound coffee cans. And I remember putting it on the ground and turning it upside down. And it was towards the twilight. And I remember taking a pebble and putting it on top of the can. And I say, if there is a God, when I wake up, that pebble will be gone. When I woke up the next morning, it was gone. It scared me so. I've never been scared like that in my life. I remember urinating on myself. And it scared me so bad. I left everything. I was so afraid that I just walked out of there. I turned around and just began to walk towards the city. I was going to catch a train. That's what my mode of traveling was, was, was riding train, freight trains. And I was going to be down in New Orleans and give myself up. When I gave myself up to law enforcement, going to the district attorney office to give myself up, and they run me through the computers, they can't find me. He says, you're not wanted, sir. Now keep in mind, it's been 22 years. He said, you're not wanted. Look, I mean, this is the district attorney himself. And he's telling me, you are free to walk out of here because you are not wanted. And I had an instant choice to make. I could have walked out or I could have told him how to prove that I am. 
instantly I thought, I said, we wasn't in the computer system then. You're going to have to go down in the basement archives. I even pointed across the street where it's at. Because I remember that when I was a law enforcement officer, I used to walk through there and put files up and get files. And and sure, sure, surely we all went over there. They looked at the file. They showed that I was wanted. And so at that point, he had to put me into custody. They set a court date up real fast. That particular judge, I didn't know that she was the toughest judge they had. With all the stuff that we had police officers had done uh, wrongly to females, she wasn't going to look too kindly. You know, there was a lot of press there, news people, blah, 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 you know, that kind of stuff. And people were in the hallways looking at me and whispering and so forth. She, the first question she asked me, I think, was, uh, are you guilty of the crime? And I told her not only I was guilty of that crime, but many other crimes. I wanted to account for everything, everything that I had did wrong. And... Uh, I remember her saying something like, uh, I'm going to give you so much time, but I heard a word that is just so common, a three-letter word that just completely flipped me. And she said, but I'm going to suspend the sentence because I think that you did enough time when you were out for those 22 years. I was sitting there stunned because I was expecting to be handcuffed and taken to Angola. And now you're telling me that after all this, that I'm uh, free. Yeah, I certainly deserve uh, much worse you know, than I got after I was freed. I think that's where the shame had came in at. You know, that I, I had done so many wrong things, you know? There's not a day come by that I don't feel sorry about what happened. Because I didn't serve time, I'm still never satisfied in paying back, you know, what I had done. When I was first freed and, and was as a free man, I still seriously considered going back out into woods. But I, I can't do nothing for the community by being in the woods. I still do some things that are wood type type, you know, forest type living. About 80% of my meal today is still wild food, coon, possum, that kind of stuff. I never eat out of a plate. I always eat out of the pot. I cook it and I don't use utensils. Unless I'm outside, I'm a guest to somebody. I mean, I know how to act. <laughs> I know how to play it off. <laughs> but I don't think uh, I'll ever quite uh, not being to a point where I miss the woods. I think that'll always be in my heart. Now, in case you were wondering, Robert Davis spends his time now helping police units weed out corruption, and all proceeds from his work go towards supporting survivors of sexual abuse. And find out more about his work on our website, snapjudgment.org. That story is produced by Anna Sussman with an original score and sound design by Renzo Gorio. When Snap Judgment continues, a relationship closer than any you might ever imagine or might want to imagine. When Snap Judgment, the Unforgiven episode continues, stay tuned. Welcome back to Snap Judgment from WNYC, the Unforgiven episode. My name is Glenn Washington, and today we're exploring what it means to forgive, to forgive other people, to forgive yourself. But what if yourself is split in two? Marjorie Wallace has the story. I was a journalist working on the Insight team as an investigative journalist off the Sunday Times in London, and I came across this story and it seemed very strange to me. The story was that there were two girls living on the coast of Wales, 
and that these two girls had committed arson, having set fire to three buildings. But what was strange about them was that they had never spoken to anyone in their lives. They spoke only to each other. Like most twins, June and Jennifer Gibbons had an innate bond. They had grown up on an army base in Wales. They started talking late, and when they finally did speak, their words came out garbled. They chirped and squeaked, enunciating the wrong syllables. No one else could understand them. It was like they were speaking a foreign language. One doctor was giving them a vaccination, and he noticed that neither of them spoke, that both moved in sort of synchronicity. They barely graduated high school, and at the time of their arson spree, June and Jennifer were still living with their parents. I saw their parents, and then they took me upstairs, and they showed me in the bedroom lots of uh, bin bags uh, filled with uh, writings, exercise books. And what I discovered was that while they had been in that room alone, they had been teaching themselves to write. And I put them in the boot of the car and took them home. And I couldn't believe this, that these girls to the outside world hadn't spoken and had been dismissed as being zombies, had this rich imaginative life. Marjorie went to visit June and Jennifer in prison, where they were awaiting trial. She thought she might be able to break through their silence. And then the twins were brought in, and that was the most extraordinary moment. First of all, two of the prison warders took one twin in, just leaning like a plank or like a coffin, really, on their shoulders. And they just got her in, and she sat down, and her eyes were downcast. She didn't move, her hands just hanging by her side. And then the second twin um, came in, and the same thing happened. And they just sat there. And then suddenly I said, do you know June and Jennifer? I've read some of your writings. And suddenly I saw a little flicker in June's eyes. She started to look up and there was a little twitching of her lips. And with great difficulty, she got out the words, did, 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 did you like them? June and Jennifer's notebooks were full of their diary entries, but they also included poems and short stories. June had even written a full-length novel, Pepsi-Cola Addict. And Jennifer had written a story about two birds raised in a zoo. Here's an excerpt. The two parrots, whose names were Polly and Perkins, often talked of how they longed to get back to their native land. Sometimes they would ask the watchers to open the cage door and let them out. Some of the children who were watching asked their parents if they could take the parrots home with them, Sometimes, before the parents had time to answer, one parrot would kindly say, we're not for sale. Then the other parrot would say the same. They desperately wanted to be recognized and famous through their writings, to have them published and to have their story told. And I felt that maybe one way of freeing them, liberating them, would be to unlock them from that silence. But by the time Marjorie started writing about the twins, their trial was already underway. In the end, they were both convicted of arson, and the judge committed the twins to Broadmoor, Britain's most secure institution for the criminally insane. It was quite an injustice that they were taken to somewhere so secure. But sadly, no other institution would accept them. And that was because everyone who interviewed them and found them too eerie, too spooky, The doctors thought June and Jennifer were deeply disturbed and dangerous. Some days, only one twin would eat, and the next day, the other would indulge as her sister starved. Other times, the nurses would find them frozen in the same pose, even though they were locked in cells on opposite ends of the hospital. But when she spent time with them, Marjorie was able to see beyond June and Jennifer's odd and sometimes unsettling behavior. She spent almost every weekend with the twins at Broadmoor. I always liked being with them. They would have that wry little sense of humour. They would uh, respond to jokes. Often we would spend uh, our teas together just laughing. Marjorie was having fun with the twins, but still, June and Jennifer's relationship wasn't easy. 
Marjorie read diary entry after diary entry in which the twins wrote about how trapped or sometimes even possessed or tortured they felt by each other. This is June. Nobody suffers the way I do, not with a sister. With a husband, yes, with a wife, yes, with a child, yes, but this sister of mine, a dark shadow robbing me of sunlight, is my one and only torment. This is Jennifer. We've become fatal enemies in each other's eyes. We feel the irritating deadly rays come out of our bodies, stinging each other's skin. I say to myself, can I get rid of my own shadow? Impossible or not impossible. Without my shadow would I die. Without my shadow would I gain life. Be free or left to die. Without my shadow, which I identify with the face of misery, deception, murder. An entire decade went by, and weekend after weekend, Marjorie visited the twins and hung out with them. More than anything, Marjorie wanted them to break their silence and start engaging with the rest of the world. I telephoned the psychiatrists, the psychologists, I talked to the Department of Health, I wrote articles in the newspapers fighting for them that they should be uh, discharged, released from Broadmoor. And finally, the doctors at Broadmoor announced they were transferring the twins to Caswell Clinic. And maybe, after about a year in Caswell, the twins could be released and rejoin the outside world. Marjorie decided to make one last visit to the twins in Broadmoor before their transfer. I took my daughter in, we went through all the doors, and then we went into the place where the visitors were allowed to have tea, and we had quite a jolly conversation to begin with. And then suddenly, in the middle of the conversation, Jennifer said, Marjorie, Marjorie, I'm going to have to die. And I sort of laughed. I sort of said, well, don't be silly, you're 31 years old. You know, you're just about to be freed from from Broadmoor. Why, Why are you going to have to die? Um, you're not ill. And she said, because we've decided. At that point, I got very, very frightened because I could see that they meant it. And then they uh, said, we have made a pact. Uh, Jennifer has got to die. Because they had said the day that they left Broadmoor, the day that they were free from the secure hospital, one of them would have to give up their life to really enable the other one to be free. I later found out that they'd been quarrelling violently from the staff at Broadmoor about who was going to die. And then they passed over a a little poem that they'd written, um, uh, which was, that too was your laughing, that too was your smiling, and now I'm dead, that too is your crying. Jennifer's cheekbones were were, were, uh, very thin and her face was very flushed. She looked, I think, quite afraid. June looked determined. I, I was very disturbed at the end of this visit. Marjorie immediately called their doctors, who said they were monitoring the twins and told her not to worry. She just waited, hoping to get a call that the twins had arrived safely at Caswell. Finally, she heard from one of the doctors. Apparently what happened was that a car came to fetch them. Jennifer hadn't been very well the night before. And they turned and they looked at the green gates of Broadmoor. It had big green gates. And as they closed, Jennifer slumped on June's shoulder. She fell into a coma. Why the staff didn't do anything on the way, I don't know, but they drove down to Wales. Jennifer was taken and laying on a bed in the hospital. By 6.15 that night, she'd been taken into as a casualty, and she was dead. June had gone to visit her straight away afterwards and laid a red rose over her. I felt absolutely devastated. I felt chill and I felt so intensely sad. The cause of Jennifer's death still remains a mystery. The autopsy revealed major swelling around her heart. The coroner never found any poison in her body. Some doctors thought the high dose of medication she took at Broadmoor might have weakened her immune system. But the twins had received the same treatment during their time in Broadmoor and June was in good health when Jennifer died. I've spent many years now wondering about the mystery of Jennifer's death. Now, I don't think there is really an explanation for that, except um, Jennifer willing herself to die. After I learned about 
Jennifer's death, um, was about two or three days later, I went down to visit June, and I found her surprisingly intact, really, and very prepared to talk. She spoke very clearly about the conflict between her um, terrible grief at losing the person closest in her life and her the freedom that Jennifer had given her. And she just said to me, Marjorie, she said, would you go to Haverford West and would you fly a banner over Haverford West and say that June is fit and well and at last coming to her own? So there she was a few days later, both grieving and mourning and at the same time saying, Jennifer gave up her life for me and now I have to go on and live for the both of us. Thank you, Marjorie, for sharing your story with The Snap. Now, if you want to learn even more about June and Jennifer, you can pick up a copy of Marjorie's book, The Silent Twins. We'll have all the details on our website, snapjudgment.org. That story is produced by Eliza Smith with an original score and sound design by Leon Morimoto. Yep, it's that time, but don't you frown. Hours amazing storytelling available right now subscribe to the snap judgment podcast snapjudgment.org snap was produced by myself and the team that never stopped forgiving the uber producer mr mark ristich pat masidi miller anna sussman julia dewitt nancy lopez joe rosenberg davy kim liza smith anna adlerstein matt ducott and jasmine aguilera much love the corporation for public broadcasting the cpb and even though this is not the news, this is WNYC. Support for Snap Judgment comes from Odoo. What is Odoo? Well, Odoo is the only software your business will ever need. Featuring a suite of integrated business applications, Odoo connects your business operations together so you can get more done in less time. Odoo has apps for everything. CRM, accounting, sales, HR, inventory, marketing, manufacturing, you name it, Odoo's got it. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash snap. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash snap.